faith is a journey. And whether you're new to the Christian faith or whether you've been a believer your whole life, it's normal to have questions along the way. We're glad when you send us your questions here at Groundwork. We'd love to help you examine scripture so that you can continue growing in faith and see how it applies to your life. So on this episode of Groundwork, we're discussing questions and topics you've shared with us this past year. Together, we'll talk about the forgiveness of sins, whether or not we need to be able to identify all of our sins. We'll discuss God's sovereignty and whether or not he's the author of evil. And we'll consider our role and the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. So stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose, and indeed, Daryl, as we just said, we collect questions uh, from our listeners. Sometimes they email us directly or they send us a physical letter. If uh, you're a regular email subscriber for uh, Groundwork, and if you're not, you can go to the website and find out how to do that so you'll always be up to date. Then you'll get uh, some surveys from us once in a while that encourage you to zip us back a note. So on this program, we're going to consider three of them, but, but they're questions that get asked more often than that as well. The first question we want to ask and address today was emailed to us from Diana. She says, I have the knowledge that I have sinned, but there are times I can't figure out what the sin was. Is there a way to determine that? So when I pray at night, I ask for forgiveness for the sins that I had done during the day. I know that he will want us to remember what it is we did. Do we remember and how do we determine Quite a few people now and then uh, will ask a somewhat related question, can God really forgive all my sins? Uh, does God really, is there enough forgiveness for all my sins? But Diana's question is along those lines, and what she's concerned about is, what about the sins we're not even aware of? And I guess if we were honest, Daryl, you could try, and some people are more diligent about this than others, I suppose, you could try at the end of every day, or you could try every Sunday in church when you get to the confession part of the worship service, you could try to remember everything you did wrong, but I doubt very few people get it all, <laughs> um, right? I mean, we, we, we forget, we didn't notice, you know? So it is, let's just admit it, it's very hard to be fully aware of everything that we may have done that would count as a sin. I think it's important to think about the fact that we have the human experience that goes in these different directions where we understand that there's a journey, a, a part of that. And, and I think that it's important to know that there were people in scripture who went through these kinds of things. And it's very cool to see that the Lord has put that in scripture so that we can see examples of people's lives who are praying these prayers or trying to figure out the difference between, okay, these sins I committed and these sins I omitted that I forgot to do something that I should have done. There's a way to determine that in the Bible. And they have specific prayers like this one here from Psalm 19. It says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. I think that's exactly what Diana is asking about, Daryl. Forgive my hidden faults. Forgive the things that I'm not even aware of, right. but you are, right? You said something just a minute ago, Daryl, that touched on sort of a traditional way to delineate sin, and that is the old sins of commission 
and sins of omission. And we usually are more aware of our sins of commission, the things we actually actively did wrong. In fact, some of us, you know, get haunted by some of our sins of commission. Um, I did something five years ago that was so dumb that hurt my wife's feelings so bad that five years later I'm still kicking myself about it, right? I mean, I, I know she forgave me. I know God forgave me. I'm trying to forgive myself. But so we tend to remember that stuff. It's harder to remember the things we omitted to do. <laughs> we can remember the cutting comment we made that, you know, belittled somebody, but we're less likely to remember that time when we could have said something nice and we just chose not to. We just <laughs> didn't, we didn't say anything, but that's wrong too, right? Or we could have done something helpful, but we just walked the other way. We're not as likely to remember those omission sins as the overt commission ones, though we can forget commission sins too, I guess. And that's true, Scott. Scripture actually encompasses that as well. I was thinking about the verse when you were speaking that says, do not withhold good to those when you Mm -hmm. have it in the power to act, which is in Proverbs chapter three. But then in Psalm 139 here, picking up at verse, end of verse 23 and 24, it says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in a way of everlasting. So the fact that the psalmist is saying, if there be anything, whether I know about it, whether I don't know about it, that was a prayer that me and my friends would pray a lot when I was coming up in the faith. We've been friends for over 20 years, but we would say, forgive us, Lord, for the sins we know about and the ones we don't know about. Knowingly and unknowingly forgive us, God. I think that it's important, too, to think about accountability can help you here because we need a community of folks. It's not designed for me to walk this faith in my own. And if Diana could hear that, I think that she would know that it's a great reward in knowing that you can walk with someone who can see that fault that you may or not be aware of and bring it to your attention. Earlier in Psalm 139, uh, there's this interesting line that, that where the psalmist essentially says, God, you know me better than I know myself which is kind of scary, except that at least we can trust that knowledge with God. But you know me better than I know myself. But sometimes, Gerald, sometimes in certain areas of our life, our friends know us better than we know ourselves. And a good friend will point it out. Uh, A good friend will do what the Apostle Paul, we've said this quite often on Groundwork over the years, but if you read the New Testament and Paul in particular, but you can pick it up in Peter and John and the other apostles, there seems to be this idea that rebuke would be a regular part of being a member of the church, that we're going to confront each other in love to say, you know what, Daryl, you can't do that. That thing you're doing, or Scott, you got to knock that off. Confess your sin and ask the Holy Spirit to straighten you up. That is indeed one way we can start to identify our hidden faults, but there will still be some leftovers. So to regularly pray, oh, Lord, forgive what I did wrong that I'm not even remembering. Forgive me for not remembering while you're at it, too. Yeah, it's true. And there is an ancient practice that is called examine Mm. where you do at the end of the day, take stock of what your day was like. What did you learn? What did you what did God teach you? And where are some of the areas that you might have fell off? What what are some of the areas that you might have made a mistake? And the Holy Spirit can actually help you walk through that, too. But again, I would recommend you do that with a buddy or a mentor or a pastor or a family member, someone who can walk with you. And as we look at this next segment, we're going to talk about the questions that people have with God's power and the problem of evil. So stay tuned. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith 
in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork. And Daryl, this is a listener question program. We've got three questions from three listeners that have come into our Groundwork uh, production office of things people wanted us to talk about. We just heard from Diana, wondering about the forgiveness of sins and can God forgive even the sins we can't articulate and remember? And we said, yes, grace is always abounding. There's always, the Bible always makes it clear there's more grace than there is sin. And that's part of the good news of the gospel. But now we've got another question um, from a listener named Keith. I have encountered in the Bible study that I sponsor several very knowledgeable Christians who believe that since God is sovereign, that he is also the author and purveyor of sin and evil. So it's more of a comment. Is this, It's the problem of evil again. It's this centuries-old argument. Is God the author of evil or is he not? Because what's going on there? And we should uh, just pause a minute to say that sovereignty means, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes a king or a queen is called the sovereign because they are in charge of the whole land. So when we say that God is sovereign, and in the Reformed tradition that you and I are a part of, Daryl, the sovereignty of God, that was a big deal for John Calvin, and so it's kind of a big deal. Yep, and for a lot of the classic Calvinists, yep, sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign, God is over everything. Everything somehow or another goes back to God, to God's rule, to God's reign, to God's kingdom. God is over everything. All. He is in charge of, he has the authority over all. That's what sovereignty means. But as Keith points out, that kind of ends up begging a question like, well, if he's over all and is in charge of all, and we're in a world where lots of bad things happen, sin and evil, what role does God play in that? Does sovereignty mean he's pushing those buttons too? So. Sovereignty means he's free and clear to do whatever he decides to do. And the fact that he's a good God means that we can trust him and that he has our best interest at heart. But it doesn't mean that he's micromanaging every single thing and pushing all the buttons and moving all the knobs and mechanisms, thinking about Oz right now. Um, It's interesting that, I mean, God is transcendent. And he's imminent, but it doesn't mean that he is controlling the free will of the people that he created. They still have a choice whether to do right and to do wrong. And I think that there is a verse about this in James chapter one. And I like to read it starting at verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. And a little saying that I have remembered that has helped me is the fact that God tests, but does not tempt. That temptation comes from something inside of us. Exactly. Do not say God is tempting me, James writes. You know, philosophers, uh, people like Alvin Plantinga have dealt with this a lot, and it can get indeed very philosophical, and we don't want to lose anybody in the philosophical weeds on this program in answer to Keith's uh, observation here. Um, But it is one thing to say that God set up a world in which bad things could happen. 
bad choices could be made. And that philosophically we say, and that maybe was also a condition for love being freely chosen. Nobody wants to live in a world where you're a pre-programmed robot, where you fall in love with somebody because you're pre-programmed to do it. No, even God wants love to be freely chosen. But just maybe in a world where that is possible, bad choices have to be possible too. So ultimately, God is sovereign. Ultimately, God created a world where bad choices could be made. But that doesn't mean he wants those bad choices. And it sure doesn't mean he's the author of them or the one who's making bank robbers pull a trigger to kill a clerk or making a person drink too much and then get behind the wheel of the car and kill somebody. God isn't making those people do that. He isn't willing that thing to happen. He grieves it, even though, yep, God set up a world where those conditions of bad choices were possible. So it goes back to God that way. But that's very different than saying this is what he wants or this is what he does. And that goes back to what you were saying about Adam and Eve in the garden. They happened in paradise and they made a decision and had consequences to it, which is why we are in this fallen state now. But God is in the process of redeeming it by using believers. I also want to talk about the fact that you said that God is the one who there's no temptation in him. There's no sin in him. And I wanted to bring that verse up from first John one beginning at verse five that talks about that. It said, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So that very verse that says that he is the light, there's no darkness in him. There's, there's no sin in him. That pretty much answers the question whether he's the author of the sin. Right. A little later in that same uh, letter in chapter 3 at verse 4, John writes, everyone who sin breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness. And in the Greek, that's antinomia. So the lawlessness is the opposite of God. I mean, mm-hmm. we recently did a series on the Ten Commandments here on Groundwork where we made it clear that God is the embodiment of God's own law. Yeah. God is the straight stick against which all crookedness in the universe gets measured and determined, right? So God can't be the author or purveyor of sin and evil because it would be against his very nature. Sin yes. is lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness is a way to refer to Satan in the in the New Testament. The man of lawlessness is the one who causes the evil and the mayhem. That is the antichrist, the anti-God state of being. And if we remember, the scripture says that Christ himself says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. So he is the very embodiment of the law, which means that all righteousness, all truth, all grace, all goodness, they reside in him and in his DNA. And this is saying that we say in church all the time, God is good all the time. All All the time, time, God is good. We don't say God is evil. (laughs) God is good. And that means that his perfect nature has nothing but goodness in it. And we should also point out, just to close out this segment in addressing Keith's observation, a pastoral note. We do believe God is able to intervene to head off certain evil things, and that we believe he does. He does heal people of cancer. He brings people out of addiction. He prevents car accidents from happening sometimes. Maybe an answer to our prayer to please keep Sally safe, Lord, when she goes out driving tonight. God can do that, and God does do that. We mostly don't know about those things because you can't talk about the accident that didn't happen, Right. right? But we believe he can. However, on a pastoral note, that doesn't always help when Sally gets killed. 
And then the parents ask you as a pastor, why didn't God prevent that? Why didn't God keep Sally safe? There's no answer to that. We as pastors have to fall back and say, I don't know. I don't know why, but I do know God's with you in your grief. I do know it's not what God wanted. He understands your lament and your anger. Pastorally, this question of evil and stuff, it leads to heart-wrenching conversations that we cannot fully understand this side of glory, and I think that's important to point out. Well, again, that's a huge topic that we could talk about uh, for uh, at least another program or so, but uh, we'll stop there. But thank you, Keith, for your question. And we're going to dig into one more question uh, that someone asked about evangelism. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose, and we're doing a listener question program here. We've had uh, two good questions from Diana and Keith, and now we have another question that somebody sent in, though we don't uh, have a name attached to this one, but here's the question. To what extent should the church do evangelism? We know that no one will come to Christ except by the Holy Spirit, so should we still reach out and do evangelism? This, too, Daryl, is kind of a an age-old question in some ways. Yeah, you know, God's sovereignty versus free will. You know, we talked about sovereignty in the last segment a little bit. But then, you know, election, is God calling them? I mean, if he's electing them, doesn't matter what I do, right? Or, you know, if he isn't electing them and they're so, quote-unquote reprobate, then what's the point of evangelism? I think that this argument has been going on for a long time. But I think it's important for us to remember, number one, election and God's sovereign choice, that's him. That's his department. We have nothing to do with that. We don't know the hearts of people. But he has given us instructions, and we need to obey those instructions with all our hearts. Exactly. Right. We don't get to see the hidden counsel of God, and so we we can never presume we know where our evangelism will be effective and where it won't be. We don't. We have no idea. And usually we're blown away by, you know, the person we <laughs> thought we'd be successful with, they turn us away, and the person we thought we'd never reach in a million years, bang, they believe the gospel right on the spot. So, you, you know, you never know. It is interesting, though. Years ago in the 1960s, within the Christian Reformed Church of North America, there was a seminary professor, the, the missions professor. Actually, his name was Harold Decker, and he published a really controversial article where he said, you know, Christian Reformed missionaries don't seem to be as successful as people from other traditions, and I think I know why. We believe in election and in limited atonement. The atonement of God is limited to the elect, and so our missionaries never dare go up to somebody and say, Jesus died for your sins. Because if they're not elect, we're not sure we can say that. And so we tend not to say that. It yielded a huge controversy that consumed the CRC through the middle part of the 1960s. But the point being, you know, we don't know who we're talking to at any given moment, right? Uh, We can't even tell when we look at the church, which is the church invisible and which is the church visible. We can't tell who in the church is really saved and who's just sort of sitting in a pew. That's, as you said, I like what you said, that's not our department. (laughs) That's God's. 
And yeah, it's not our department to know what's going on in the hearts of people. I think we need to understand that we have a God who is missional and he sends people. That's what he does. And that's our call to go as sent ones to wherever he may send us. And in Romans 10, it picks up this and picking up at verse 14, it says this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? So they got to hear. And then it says, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So our God is sending people. He's sending people to spread that good news. And you don't have to be a preacher to spread the good news. I just right. want to let you know that. Yeah. We could say, how, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? We could say, how can they hear without someone witnessing to them? It doesn't be, have to be restricted to preaching. So in other words, Paul is saying, you want other people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus? You better tell them. There's not going to be sky riding in the sky. You know, a tract isn't going to fall out of heaven <laughs> to their lap. It's your lips God needs. It's your voice God needs to get the word out there. That's a good thing. And, you know, uh, I don't know if the person who sent in this question is part of a Reformed tradition, but that certainly in certain areas of, uh, of Reformed Christianity and Presbyterians, this emphasis on election, mm-hmm. on predestination, uh, has sometimes led to some unhappy consequences. There's a well-known scene in a Paul Schrader movie called Hardcore, where the actor George C. Scott is in a Las Vegas airport searching for his daughter, who's gotten lost in a world of pornography. He strikes up a conversation with a prostitute of all people. This is a very buttoned-down man from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so she asks what he believes, and he says, well, we believe in total election, you know, the sovereignty of God. And the prostitute says, so that's it, huh? I can't be saved. The game is fixed. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have a good answer. Rich Mao wrote a book about that very scene, Calvinism in a Las Vegas airport, in which he said, The thing to say back is, no, the game isn't fixed. We don't know what the game is. You can come to believe, too, right now. Jesus could be calling your name. I have no idea. But the game is not fixed in a way that we're helpless. And we have to believe that and let that motivate our witness. And if Jesus is in the process of sending his disciples, I think it's important for them to go. (laughs) There's a verse that right before he sends them out, he says, I need you to pray to the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, (laughs) but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers in the vineyards so they can go out there and reap that. And then the next verse, he sends them as the answer to their prayer. Like, oh, guess what? God's answering their prayer. Now you get to go. That's right. And so I don't think you pray for. You might be the answer to your own. Prayer. <laughs> it's true. And I don't think we can use scripture to nullify scripture. Okay, Romans 9 through 11 talks about God's sovereign choice, but it doesn't nullify the obedient step that it takes to follow what Christ said when he told us to go. Ephesians 1, there's no contradiction between predestination and active witnessing. Paul says, Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And then he goes on in verse 13 to the Ephesians, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So in other words, yep, it's all about predestination. And yep, it's all about somebody telling you about God, because when you heard it, you realize I am part of the elect. I have been predestined, but I, I wouldn't have known that if somebody hadn't told me. 
So, yeah, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. We can't do that. Right. But the Holy Spirit uses you and me and all of us as his hands, his feet, his voice to get the word of life across. And I think that the scripture that says all things work together for the good of those who love God and according to according to his purpose works in that. And then when Genesis 50, 20 says that whatever happened for evil, no matter what, God has turned it around for our good and for his glory. And so we thank God that even though he's sovereign, we are the ones that trust in his plans and we do what he tells us to do. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into scripture with Groundwork. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to dig deeply into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob. 